discussed here in book three of the Psalter. And these are divisions that you can find in your Bible. If you, uh, if you just glance through, you'll see these after 41, after 72, and you see these new books. And so this is a collection that we're in. Psalm, uh, Psalm 83 is right here in this collection of Psalms that is in book three. And that's going to take us all the way down through Psalm 89 until we get to Psalm 90, which is a psalm that kicks off book four. So here in book three, the focus is really on devastation. It's on loss. It's on hurt. It's on lament in the situation that the people found themselves in. The first two books, Psalms really all the way up through 72, they're focused on the king, the Davidic king that's being established, and the suffering that that king has to endure and go through. And then it's also, in book two, it begins to focus more on the kingdom that that king is establishing. And so we move into book three, and the question is, well, why didn't it work? <laughs> Why didn't it work? If Israel is God's chosen people, there's all these great and wonderful promises, then why did they get displaced from the land? And so this, it's really a long series of questions, laments. How long, O oh Lord? Why is this happening? And so I think these Psalms, they find particular relevance for us because we can often feel that way as well. We've titled this The Godless Coalition, that's different from the Gospel Coalition, for those of you who are aware of that ministry. The Godless Coalition, there's a coalition of nations that come together and they seek to destroy Israel. And this is what this whole psalm is about. God, you see these people? Do you see them forming up? Do you see what they're trying to do to us? And they ask the Lord not to let that happen and to act in ways that he has acted in the past to deliver them. I just want to give a tip of the cap. There's quite a bit of interpretive questions and debate around this particular psalm. Is this something that's already occurred? Is it something that's going to happen yet in the future? Is there overlap? There's a place in Second Chronicles 20 that has some similar overlap to these nations and this coalition of people against God's people. There's some similarities with Nehemiah when he leads the, the, the uh, return back to rebuild the temple and the walls. And Ezra and Nehemiah, is this referencing that? Is this the battle of Isaiah 17 and Revelation 19? There's a lot of questions around that. And we won't get into too much of all that today, but there is a lot to be discussed and talked about. But what we want to do today is we want to look at this psalm and we want to see the overarching principle. And that is there are a group of people that were organized and wanted to take out God's people. And how should we respond how should we respond? Here's our outline today. A little bit longer than our typical outlines. Some people hate God's people. We'll see that in verses 1 through 8. Those people have a history of losing. And then all people will know that Yahweh is God in the end. Some people hate God's people. I just want to remind you that I think some people maybe have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. I think some people think that once I become a Christian, well, I got God on my side, right? He's like my ultimate cosigner. Everything's going to work out. He's got my back. It's true in many ways, but I think many people sort of interpret that to mean that life is not going to be hard anymore. If we have any seasoned Christians amongst us today, would you say that you no longer have any struggles or any problems because you are a Christian? 
Well, in some ways, we ask for it, right? Because we're standing against the world. We're really asking for it. When you take a stand for Christ, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a story as old as time. And so I don't want you to have that wrong impression that somehow, because life is difficult, because things happen, that somehow maybe I'm just not a Christian because God would never allow that to happen. God's people have been under attack for all of time. And that's what I want to try to show you for just a moment here this morning. I want to work backwards throughout time and church history just for a second. And we're just going to grab like a snapshot here, a snapshot there, just to validate and show this point that people have always, who live for Christ, have always undergone some level of persecution. This isn't a new story. And there's literally millions of examples we could grab, but just a few. How about in Bali, Indonesia? 87% Hindu. It's a Muslim-majority country. About 87% actually of the country overall is Muslim with the Far East regions, or I'm sorry, Far West regions out in the Banda Aceh region is under full Sharia, uh, Muslim control. Bali would be on the other end. Indonesia is a series of islands, lots of them. But in Bali in particular, they are Hindu for the most part. When someone converts to Christianity in the Bali area, and this isn't unique to Bali, but it's certainly true there, when they convert to Christianity, they are forced to move away from their family property because they're considered, they they have temples and then they kind of have regional temples and then house temples. And they have to get out of the Holy Land because they're no longer believers. They're no longer adherents to Hindu thought and practice. And so they can't live there anymore. And we've talked to some of these people and it's really incredible. And they're not violent. Um, It's not that type of persecution, but they're just squeezed out of life. And so there's churches over in Bali, even right this moment, they're working to to buy property so that they can house people who convert to Christianity. Uh, kind of an interesting you know, ministry conundrum there. Um, some of y'all have been wanting to build a commune or something. Um, that would actually be like a really valid ministry, uh, ministry expense over there. It's going on. So that's just one spot. Let's jump way back into the Roman Empire. You know the story. This is the Roman Colosseum. And there's differing accounts on exactly what did or didn't happen at the Colosseum. But we know that during the days of the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted. Nero was a terrible person in the first century. And then many of the emperors after him weren't any better. And so to be a Christian was extremely costly. You didn't just walk out of church and wear your Christian name badge everywhere, perhaps because it was costly, very costly, to be a Christian in that day, in that world. Persecution comes in different types. There's what we sometimes call the smash, where people are actually killed for their faith, but oftentimes it's the squeeze, where people are just sort of pushed out of society. They're not allowed to trade. They're not allowed to own businesses, and they're sort of practically put on the outside of social life. So this is another place where we saw Christians and Christianity that was marginalized until, of course, Constantine and all that went on after that in 313. So the martyrdom of the apostles, so pressing back in. So we're just grabbing some snapshots and just looking at over time. This is not a new story. 
the martyrdom of the apostles. This is a painting, and each panel of the painting depicts one of the apostles and how they were killed. I know everybody's wanting one of these for your house, right? You can find it. It's called the martyrdom of the apostles. And it's just a reminder, and many of you, if you've traveled a little bit, maybe in Europe or other parts of the world, you'll, you'll go in a, in, in a church and the, there's stained glass um, images everywhere, or maybe paintings, and it reminds people of the story of the martyrs, that people gave their life for Christ. And it's a reminder as well that Christ gave his life and we may be called to do the same. It's very serious, very sober. And so each one of these panels depicts that. Um, We don't have those all recorded for us in the scripture, but church history tells us, and there's good reason to believe that those stories are true. All but the Apostle John, who was exiled out to the Isle of Patmos, which, by the way, Patmos ain't a terrible place to be, but, you know, you were exiled away from everybody and put out on your own. It's actually a beautiful Greek island out in the Mediterranean. So John was the only one that church history tells us was not killed, although some histories record that he was actually martyred as well. And then, of course, we have Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. This is an anonymous painting from around 1400 of Christ himself. This shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said that you are going to kill me just like you kill the prophets. So this is a story that's old, very old. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah... Daniel was persecuted, Joseph even, although not a prophet properly, he was persecuted as well by his brothers. So how should we think about this? Peter talks about this in the New Testament, and I love what he says. First Peter 4, 12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, you're not going to believe this. I told everybody I'm a Christian and they didn't like it. Oh, really? Well, this is a story as old as time. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Hey, you're standing in a long line. Long line of godly people. It's all right. You should expect it. You should absolutely expect it. So let's get back to our text. God's people and God's enemies. With all that in mind, some people hate God's people. Therefore, implication for us, don't be shocked if you are on the receiving end of people not appreciating your Christian views and stances. Just don't be shocked. It's a story that's been around forever. Psalm 83. This is the last of the Psalms of Asaph. It says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace. Or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Their intentions are very clear. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher has also joined them. They are strong, the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, 
and their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. What a fantastic psalm this is for us. Now, as I mentioned, we're in the midst of book three, and there's been a series of reflections on Israel's plight. They find themselves in this situation. They've been displaced from the land. They're trying to come to grips with that. God made these promises. Why is this happening to us? And we get different perspectives from the different Psalms. From a human perspective, they're looking at the promises of God and thinking, what's gone wrong here? God said he was going to do this, and now it's not happening. But from a divine perspective, which we saw in Psalm 81, Psalm 81 says this, God speaking, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So from God's perspective, you asked for this. You did this. Many of you have had that conversation sometimes as parents. Many of you have been on the receiving end of that conversation, maybe from your boss. You're like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Like, well, buddy, you didn't produce. You didn't show up. You didn't study for the test. You didn't practice. This is why this is happening to you. Like, I can't believe what in the world has happened. And God says, you did this. You asked for this. And I've let you have it. So Israel... Why won't you listen? So what's the situation that's prompted this particular prayer? In verse 1, there's a cry out to God, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. So Lord, rouse yourself, do something. Do something. So I mentioned earlier, there's this coalition of nations that comes together. And so what we have here on a map, I'll show you, that these nations are all working to defeat Israel. And as the old saying goes, nothing unites people like what? Common enemy. And so you have all these nations who really didn't want a lot to do with each other, but they all want Israel dead. And so this, this is what's going on here. So it was this 10-nation alliance that looks something like this. Now, here we are. Uh, so we have these 10 nations, uh, Gibraltar, Philistia, Amalek, Ishmaelites, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Hagrites, and Assyria. Now, Israel is here, okay? They're this little spot right here, and they have all these people basically surrounding them, and they have a coalition that they formed, and they want to take Israel out. And the leaders are looking around thinking, this is not a good situation, not a good situation at all. All of these, what we'll understand now, are these Arab nations who want to take out Israel. Some things never change, right? Who are these nations? They descend really from Esau and Ishmael. You remember Esau was the brother who was not the covenant son, not Isaac's covenant son, Jacob and Esau. And they are descendants of Esau. 
They are descendants of Lot, and then they are also the descendants of Ishmael. You might remember with Abraham. God promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. He's getting old, though. He's in his 70s at this point. Some of y'all are thinking, that's not cool, um, having a baby <laughs> at that age. Very old, and years go by. God promises, you're going to have a son. Years go by. The promise doesn't come about. They take matters into their own hands. He has a child by his, hand, his wife's handmaid, um, Hagar. This is Ishmael. Ishmael comes about, and Ishmael's descendants end up being a thorn in the side for Israel for the rest of time. This is what happens. And so many of these are descendants from Ishmael, others from Esau, others from Lot. This is, these are the people that are aligned against him. Let's discuss this a little bit more. The simple fact that some people just hate God's people. Why is that? I want to explore this for a second. Who hates God's people? Why do they hate God's people? And what does this mean for Christians? And I want to talk about this really from our perspective. We may not have this specifically the same type of thing going on that somebody hates you just because of your ethnicity, although that's certainly possible even in today's world. Who is it that hates God's people? They hated Israel because they were the nation Israel. But people also hate Christians today as well. Jesus responding to this idea Why do people hate him? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Who hates God's people? People that love their own sin, that love themselves. That's who hates God's people. Christians represent a moral standard to some people, and they just don't like it. It's offensive to them, and so they push back on it. So this is also why they hate God's people. Presents and stands for biblical values. You can look back over history and see the influence Christianity has had in various cultures. I showed a picture of the Colosseum a moment ago in Rome. If you go to the Colosseum now, there's a spot up on one of the decks and there's a gigantic cross that's put up. And the cross reminds people that it was Christianity and the influence of Christianity ultimately in the kingdom that ended the gladiator games. Eventually, people just wouldn't go anymore because they wouldn't stand for it and the brutality and the bloodthirst. And it sort of just ended because there was no economic influence anymore. So it was Christians that did that. And some people didn't appreciate that. Some people hated that. What does this mean for Christians? Just a few thoughts, as I said earlier from 1 Peter 4, we should expect it. We should expect people to push back against Christianity. We should persevere through this. As Jesus said, we should love our enemies. But also, as we'll see in this psalm, we can pray for God to work. We can pray for that. And we can ask God to stop evil and evildoers. I think that is a perfectly valid prayer as we'll see later in this psalm. So, some people hate God's people. I think it's self-evident and clear throughout the Bible and throughout our own experience in church history. Next, those people have a history of losing. Those people, meaning the people that hate God's people. They don't win, all right? This is the best news of today. The bad guys don't win in the end. This is one of those stories that ends like it should, 
they will not win. You know, one of the great joys of having younger kids, many of you are in that stage of life right now, is getting on the floor and tussling around with your kids. And they just love to wrestle. You know, they're like lab puppies. They just kind of keep coming back and back and back. And it's, it, I, I've always joked that little boys especially, girls somewhat, but boys especially, they're like alternators. It's like the, you, you're like, well, we just got to wear them out. I'm like, I think it gives it more energy, actually. It's like, it just spins and spins, and it's like, it's recharging as it's going. So I don't know if that theory works. I think you got to really push the limits to get them to actually wear down. But one of, the, one of the fun things is just, you know, especially just having young kids and you wrestle and you get on the floor and tussle about. And it's, just, it's just good times uh, for parents and kids um, alike. But they're, 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 they're not going to win, though, right? They're just, they're just not going to win, like pin you to the ground, you know, all right, tap out. Like, it's not happening. Um, not, not yet. Now, they get a little older and you got you to sort of measure when we're going to do this now. Um, you know, when they start to get a little older, get a little stronger, you're like, uh, not right now, uh, maybe later. You start to kind of, you know, make business decisions on like, when do I engage in this and not? And, but, but early on, there's just, there's no real chance of a, of a, of a loss. You're not going to lose that, you know, dad's amongst us and makes you feel good about yourself, right? Um, rule in our house is you got you to gotta earn it. Like, you're going to beat dad in something, you got to win. Like, we don't hand out participation trophies. Like, you got to win. You got to win. Um, so that's just our house. So when we look back over the history of those who oppose God's people, they lose, all right, categorically. Now, here's what maybe is tricky about this whole thing, is they may be allowed to win for a specific amount of time, and God is actually using that to judge his people, and then he judges those that he has allowed to defeat his people. It happens all the time. Kind of complex theologically when we start to really look at that and think of that. The Midianites were some of those people who were allowed for a time to win, and then God said enough, and they lose. It's right there. So let's move into this section then. Verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, all right, so Midian's the people, as to Sisera and Jabin, Sisera's the military commander, Jabin's the king, at the river Kishon, which is where this incident took place, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, all right, so no doubt about what's happening here. They had an improper burial, uh, a dishonorable burial, which would have been a big deal in that culture and world. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and their princes like Zeba and Zulmana, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, there's two stories about Midian losing, and I want to just take a moment and tell you a little bit about those because you can see what the psalmist is reflecting on. So, part of the reason it takes us a little while, as those living here in 2023, it takes us a little while to work through a text sometimes, is because we don't know all the background and all the history, and that's not immediately accessible to many of us. And so, when we start reading about Midian and, you know, Sisera, um, my guess is, unless you're just one of those people who just sort of has that encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible, you probably didn't immediately remember what story that was from. I certainly didn't. I had to go look it up. So here we are in Judges 4. Let's understand the characters here. So the Israelites, we have Deborah, who's the judge of Israel. 
lady judge of Israel during the day, Barak, and then Jael. She's going to become relevant in just a moment. So Deborah and Barak. Look at Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. All right, so remember, we've talked about this. What, God, why is this happening? Well, verse 1, they did what was evil. And what happened? Verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So we just saw his name. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hereshabaginam. That one got me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so Israel has been in bondage to these Midianites, to Sisera, the commander, and Jabin, the king, for a period of time. They cry out, and Deborah, the judge, she's going to step up and say, hey, it's time, it's time to go take them out. And so she leans on Barak, the commander at the time, and says, hey, it's time to go take this guy out. And he says, I'm kind of scared. I'm paraphrasing, but you can read it. I'm kind of scared, but if you'll go, I'll go. All right? Tells Deborah that. So Deb says, sure, I'm in. Let's go. And so this is exactly what happens. Sisera, the commander of the Midianite forces, says, oh, perfect. He's drawn them out into battle. Let's go take them out. Remember? They're the guys with all the weapons. They got all the artillery on their side. They got 900 chariots. That's a lot of chariots. 900 chariots. So what happens from there? Well, the Lord actually causes a gigantic storm to come, creates muddy environment where these heavy chariots can't get around. And so, and you can see that in Judges 5.21, and he also, in Psalm 83, mentions this river uh, becomes a factor. The river floods and it creates this environment that they can't fight in. And so they're, they're routed by the Israelites. Sisera, the commander, he ditches his chariot, presumably because it's stuck in the mud. He ditches his chariot, and he's running, trying to find cover. And he comes across Jael, this lady, and she pretends to be on his side. Like, hey, come in here, come in here. And she gives him some food and gives him a warm blanket and covers him up. And then I just want to read you what the Bible says, okay? Judges 4.18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. She brought him some food. Verse 21. But Jael... The wife of Heber took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him. She drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Now, the psalmist says, we want that kind of thing to happen to our enemies. You see them all? You see them? They're aligned against us. 900 chariots. What are we going to do? Well, there's two really brave ladies and a rainstorm. That's what took out the Midianites. Pretty awesome story. And so he hints at that a little bit later in this, uh, in this psalm. So that's the first story. This is what God does. The second story of Midian losing, they had a period of about seven years of rest. And then the second story is Gideon. I won't take too long on Gideon's story. 
because this is one that's probably a little bit more familiar uh, to many of us. Gideon is called to go and fight the Midianites. Hey, it's time to deal with them again. Gideon's called and he puts together his army. He has 22,000 forces, 22,000 soldiers. And God says, no, that's way too many, way too many soldiers. Now, our military folks amongst us, you don't really want to walk into a situation disadvantaged by numbers, right? You don't really want to do that. God says it's way too many. And so Gideon goes to the people and says, hey, in, back in my day in high school, we used to say, if you're scared, say scared, right? Gideon does that. He says, hey, if you're scared, just say it and go home. Half of them left. Quite a soldier crew, right? Quite a battalion. So it goes from 22,000 to 11,000. If you're scared, say scared. They left. And then they have that whole incident where God says those who, who drink the water in different ways, take them down to the creek. Whoever laps the water versus whoever uh, uses his hands and brings, draws water. And so he calls down the army even more to 300 people, 300 soldiers. They have trumpets and pots. Now you're ready to fight the Midianites. It's impossible odds. And so you see why the psalmist is grabbing these stories? Because they're two stories that just from a tactical perspective, if you're in the war room and you're figuring out how we're going to defeat the Midianites, that's not what you come up with. But the psalmist says, no, this is the type of situation we're going to need to win this. We need God to step in in an incredible way. And so that's exactly what he does. It's an incredible story. Incredible story. So moving on, verse 13. So these are the two stories, one of Barak, Gideon, and Jael, and then the other of Gideon and his army. In Judges 6 through 8, he says in verse 13, Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as flame sets the mountains ablaze, so you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Now there's three different images here. There's images and they're all from nature. And I think most likely he's tapping into what just happened. There was this gigantic rainstorm which helped Israel win. Lord, it's gonna take natural elements even to take these people out. Make them like dust, like chaff, very Psalm 1-ish. Make them like the chaff. The chaff is uh, when you thresh wheat, you would throw the wheat up, and as, as the wheat is, it hits the ground and is thrown up again, the, the husk, almost like a little peanut husk uh, for peanut-eating folks amongst us, and it's, it's like you just kind of move it around in your hands and it blows away. The wicked are like that, according to Psalm 1. So make them like that. They seem really strong right now. Make them like that. Or as fire consumes the forest. We've heard way too much about fires in the last little bit uh, with the tragedies in Hawaii and then, of course, in Canada this last summer. Um, Just uh, fire is so catastrophic. He says, make it like that. In an arid environment, they dealt with fires over in the Middle East as well. Still do to this day. They deal with them in Greece and all around that whole area. He says, make it like a hurricane. Now, that's an interesting translation. It's really like a gale. Uh, They wouldn't have hurricanes here specifically, but we understand that term pretty well around here, don't we? We might have a storm this week, by the way. Y'all should check the news if you aren't aware of that one. Uh, Coming up from the Gulf, uh, looks like it's going to, I didn't check it this morning, but looks like it's coming in towards like Tallahassee, Steenhatchee kind of area over there. So just keep an eye on that. Um, So he says, just like that, 
bring them, bring them about, bring them to nothing. So these people have a history of losing. Lastly, those people, they have a history of losing, but we need to understand something. All people are going to know that Yahweh, God's proper name, that he is the true God. He's the true God. Look at what it says in verse 16. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame forever and forever dismayed. And then verse 18. That they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, Lord in all caps, Yahweh, you are the most high over the earth. Everybody's going to know in the end. One of my favorite quotes that reminds us that we are headed towards something. We're heading towards something great and glorious. As we've been reminded already this morning about the return of Christ, all of history is pointing to this moment. John Piper said, all of history is moving toward one great goal, the white hot worship of God and his son among the peoples of the earth. Missions is not that goal, it's the means. And for that reason, it is the second greatest human activity in the world. And Piper says that to say worship is the greatest activity in the world. And so as we do missions, we tell people how to become worshipers of God. All of history is aligned towards this one goal. We get to be a part of that. We're on the winning team in the end. Final reflections on Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All people will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All people will know that he is the most high overall. It might look scary in the middle. We might be in the rainstorm waiting on a deliverer. It might look like the odds are against us. God always wins. He's the betting favorite every time, and it's not even close. The Lord wins in the end. If you're here this morning, you're a believer. I hope this is an encouragement to you just to remember that God does win in the end. If you're not a believer here, let me just encourage you, think through these things carefully. Understand and know that you will bow your knee to Christ one day. You will. Question is, is it going to be now or is it going to be on that day, on Judgment Day? We would love to talk to you more about what that means, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If anybody has questions about that, you can find us right after the service. We would love to have that conversation. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement that you do win in the end. And it's not even close. As we see these stories, some of them are even almost comical in how much the odds were stacked against God's people and how just over and over and over again they win. These are just two stories of many that we could look at in the Old Testament. And so, Lord, we draw from that and we remember that you are God who can bring about incredible good out of situations that may seem hopeless and lost. So, Lord, we pray for that. Lord, we pray that even for our city right now, we pray that for these situations, that any situation that we're dealing with that involves loss and tragedy, Lord, you bring about good in the end. It doesn't mean we don't lament and hurt, but it does mean that you bring about good in the end, and we are grateful for that. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.